Welcome to the Alien Probe Podcast. It is Sunday, May 21st, 2023. I'm Doug. Joining me again today is Deb. How's it going, Deb? It's going great. How was your week? Eh, pretty quiet. Went to a haunted castle yesterday. Yeah, we didn't get to do the tour, though, because we went to the uh, the craft show. Yeah, we went to the basement, of the, but we saw some nasty parts of a haunted castle that yeah. was a home for wayward boys of some kind. Yeah, 1894? Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of freaky. I don't know. It's creepy. It was creepy. We're going to do the tour soon. So today we're going to join again uh, with a journey to the... Um, Secret journey to planet Serpo. Deb is not, Deb is, we know, as you've, whoever's listened to this ongoing through the 140 episodes, Mm -hmm. Deb's not a huge UFO ET fan, but I try to drag her into our world. I mean, I'm learning about planet Serpo. (laughs) I'm learning as we go. So we've done episode one through three, and I can see, and thank you for those of you that are following um, through the journey. I'm hoping that you look forward. We don't do them every week. But we try to do the update. Um, was that a dog? That was, was a dog that? sneeze. <laughs> a dog sneeze. So, um, you know, this is so this is part four. So if you want to get caught up, uh, listen to parts one through three. We've had, we're having a good time. We're kind of following the book, interjecting some, you know, commentary and um, things and as we go along. So we'll get right started. Get right started. We'll get, get started, right? Um, President Kennedy gave the official directive for the Even Exchange program. The date for the alien landing had been previously set for April 24th, 1964, and the landing site was to be at the western border of Holloman Air Force Base, adjacent to the southern entrance to White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico. It was originally planned to be only a diplomatic visit during which the aliens would also retrieve the bodies of the nine dead victims of the two New Mexico crashes, as well as the body of EBE-1. But President Kennedy decided to request that the event become and more of an exchange program. Yeah, this request was communicated to the Even Home Planet and was approved by them around September 1962. As noted earlier, the exchange program idea was originally put forth by EBE-1 in his fifth message in 1950 through 1952. EB is extraterrestrial uh, intelligence. Is it being? Yeah, extraterrestrial being. Being? Yeah, EBE. Um, extraterrestrial being, EBE. Oh, anyway, in his fifth message in 1952. In a reply directly to him, the Ebens agreed to a return visit, but did not mention an exchange program. They suggested a date 10 years in the future. Well, you know, you don't want to exchange too soon. No. This reply may have suffered from EB-1's translation. Oh, that's right, because he wasn't the, he was more of a mechanic as opposed to, okay. Yeah. Um, EB's translation and the military handlers at Los Alamos first believed it to be a mistake. Yeah, because 10 years seems like a long time to wait to exchange your prisoners. Well, not the prisoners. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The the willing participants. The willing twelve. Yeah, and we'll again. This is. Um, I'm assuming everybody listened to the first couple, few, first three. But you know, this is we're going to have twelve volunteers, quote unquote volunteers. Mm, they're yeah. they're volunteers yeah. that are going to come from uh, Earth to go to um, Serpo in the uh, Zeta Reticuli system, and then uh, for ten years, and then come back. 
But before they could, again, um, before they could make, could obtain a correction, EBE-1 had died so that um, date 1962 remained until the new one in 1964 could be established in 1955 via Eben communication. Um, as it turned out, the new date was really 12 years in the future from when EB-1 had received his reply. Now, in 1962, when communications were much improved, Kennedy realized that the exchange request might now receive an approval, and it did. It was agreed that they would send, we would send 12 American astronauts to the alien planet, and they would leave one Eben ambassador here for a period of 10 years. Oh, so kind of like, you know, we're keeping one so that we know we get ours back? Yeah. <laughs> I don't, yeah. I don't. Um, since the planned date of the landing couldn't be changed without great difficulty, that meant that the government planners had only about 18 months to select, train, and train our ambassadorial team. So then uh, it was very tight schedule for such an unprecedented and complicated program. The selection process alone could easily involve a six-month effort. And you know when you're dealing with the military and we have to agree on the gov- anything. Government. Yeah, the government, government. alone. Yeah. Nothing, nothing gets done quickly. Exactly. Um, while President Kennedy had placed the entire program in the hands of the De- Defense Intelligence Agency, This did not preclude the use of civilian subcontracting agencies. However, it was quickly decided that the Air Force would be the lead agency taking responsibility for finding 12 volunteers for this historic mission. That would be fun. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's extraterrestrial uh, biological entity. I'm sorry, I should have known that. Oh, you definitely should know that. (laughs) Wait a minute, I should have known that. Um, We probably said that in the first episode. We did, but then I have to, again, people aren't, they're EB, what's that? Um, The Air Force brought in civilian consultants to help with personnel selection and mission planning. Interestingly, NASA, which became operational in October 1st, 1958, had no involvement in the mission. Oh, really? Yeah, and there's a reason. Okay. Under the terms of the the, uh, National Aeronautics and Space Act of July 29th, 1958, NASA was to be the official government agency charged with space exploration. And since they had fully absorbed the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, God, so many committees, they had already had a 46-year history of space research that could certainly help to expedite the program, planning, and preparations. NACA. NACA? NACA, NASA. National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. Yeah, NASA is a um, civilian... Uh, well, this, they may mention this, and one will mention it twice, but the NASA charter specified that it remained non-military. Yeah. So while the DIA, and we remember from the previous episode, yeah. DIA is the uh, agency that um, Kennedy uh, came up with in uh, because the CIA wasn't giving him all the all the data that um, he felt they should be. So um, they were holding back because... We all know the CIA is pretty much more powerful than the government. Yes. So, uh, however, as uh, will be seen below, NASA did participate in training the team. Okay. Um, the appointed military civilian selection committee debated for months about the criteria to be applied in choosing the team members. 
This was, of course, precious time lost because, you know, it's government. It was finally (laughs) decided all candidates must be military, but not necessarily from the Air Force. Well, they made one one decision. Look at there. Yeah. A whole decision. This is a, you know, it's a common theme with the government. There were to be no civilian members of the team. They had to have chosen the military as a career and had to have completed at least four years of service. And I think that's good. Yeah, this that's decision, a good starting point. This decision made a lot of sense. Um, the mission required an ultra high level of personal and team discipline since the team members would be facing enormous hardship and they would have to rely on that discipline to handle the challenges. As previously discussed, Kennedy and the DAA were not absolutely certain that they would not be facing a possible threat from the Evans. Um, They wanted people who could defend themselves and could possibly even find a way to return to Earth by force if it became necessary. And that's a nice thought, but we have to remember what we're dealing with here. And you're just going to, like a movie, shoot your way out of there. And steal a spaceship. I like Tom Cruise. So like stealing a plane. Yeah. And, and, you know, the enemy's plane and flying it back home. Yeah, just randomly. I've never seen this before. And I've never, not checked out on this aircraft. And I'm just going to start flipping toggle switches and things. And aim for home. Yeah, and that's the other thing. Where's home? Yeah, you don't have a clue. where You you don't know where you are, where you want to go. Freaking Lost in Space episode. Um, The committee would be looking for individuals with special skills appropriate to their roles in the mission who had additionally been cross-trained in other needed skills. Also, they wanted some evidence that each team member had the ability to step into the shoes of another member if necessary because, you know, people are going to die. Redundant systems. Yeah. Yes, because you have a limited amount of personnel and it's 10 years and these guys, although they're not old, they're not young. So Mm -hmm. things happen. The team members had to be currently unmarried. Presumably, this requirement did not eliminate those uh, previously married, but they could not have any children. Divorced people were okay. Yeah. Preference would be given for those who were uh, themselves orphans. (laughs) I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The goal was to select candidates with as few family ties as possible. Yeah, that's the fewer people that know this is even happening, the better, obviously. Apparently, there was a concern that family members might somehow learn of the program, you think, and might conceivably make public their worries about its safety. Yeah, that you don't want that cat out of the bag. You know, that would have... Can you imagine, okay, well, we can't... All these people involved, you'll never get this thing off the ground. Well, you would have to separate those family members and not let them in public. Even the, um, and they'll talk about this later, yeah. they, of the 12 people, and they, uh, one of the people decided that they didn't want to do it. Yeah. And um, again, we'll, but they, um, so they threw in an alternate, but they told the person that didn't want to do it that oh. they had to stay in uh, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas prison. Yeah, you're, you'd until be isolated. they got back. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so he changed his mind. Yeah, I guess I, I guess might as well go. I might as well just go. These 12 individuals uh, would be entirely in the hands of another civilization on a planet in a distant star system, and the government had little or no leverage to ensure their safety. Their safety, of course, was highly problematic. This was a very dangerous mission, and the fate of the team was basically unpredictable. You think? Yes, very unpredictable. I mean, they're... It's It's scary. If they did all die, we would have no way of knowing whether it was accidental 
So we couldn't retaliate against the Eben in our custody, nor we want to anger an alien race that had technology to invade the Earth. Yeah, let's, yeah. So you just, you know, did they ever get there? You know, we don't. Yeah. You wouldn't know. Did they die in transit? Did they get killed when they got there? Did they not, you know, did they like it and just decide, eh, we're going to set up camp here. We're not coming home. Well, and the other thing is... We're orphans. They're going to mention this later also, but it, I like to jump in and yes, throw this in. They're going to... What happened to these people? They, mm-hmm. did, you know, they disappeared. Even though they say they have no family contact, there is probably somebody, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, they. this was kind of during the Vietnam War. This whole thing happened. Yeah. So... Um, by the time it went off, by the time it actually got off the ground in '65 or '63, I will have to see. There were some changes in the dates. This was a delicate balance, but we had enough experience with the Evens to feel confident that the team had a re- reasonable chance of survival and returning safely. So we we, we had a huge amount of trust for these guys to take care of have. our people, we and should. then actually get them back to Earth, and then it'll be our problem again. <laughs> We basically had to learn to trust them, but this was to be the first time any human will be sent out into space beyond Earth's orbit. It was a grand adventure, really more appropriate to the realm of science fiction to that of reality. Yeah, really? Hugely really? science fiction. And, that, and that's a discussion we've had about this whole story. Mm-hmm. Either a fantastic right. science fiction writer put this all together, which could happen. We've had a lot of... Uh, hi, Max. We've had a lot of... Uh, stories that uh, we haven't had a lot of stories that we thought were fact were actually fine science fiction but or vice versa so but it was worth the risk if they all had or even some of them returned safely to earth we would have complete details about a civilization on a distant planet which would be a window into the universe of incalculable value so the call for volunteers was placed in military publications Eventually, that's kind of interesting how I guess they just so said they, well, they vaguely we need volunteers. Yeah, they didn't obviously say exactly what they were <laughs> want, doing. Want to go to another planet? Uh, I ev- think they said it was a moon. I think, if, as I remember, they said it was a mission to the moon or something. So after some months, the final 12, 10 men, two women were chosen. Uh, there were eight Air Force selectees, two Army and two Navy. Additionally, four alternates were picked. They would go through the same training as the uh, main team, the alternates, in case a trainee was eliminated or dropped out. These 16 were the very best and most likely to complete the mission successfully. So if you dropped out, they just said they we didn't really know what happened. Yeah. Just, you know. So relative to selection, the following quoted information came from someone in England who claimed to have been an MI6. Yep. Uh, the British intelligence agency, and was involved in the program. It was sent to the website. It was not disputed by Anonymous. The advertisement, which was sent out, asked anyone interested in volunteering for a space program to apply. It was semi-classified. semi-classified. I don't know what's... You're either classified or you're not. Yeah, it's... I mean, so I don't really know If you're putting this mean. in a publication, it's subject to getting passed around. Yeah, that's interesting. The disguise was that the U.S. Air Force was selecting a special team to travel to the moon, and these people must undergo special training and a special selection process. None of the military people trying out for the team knew the real mission. About 500 people applied. That's pretty good. That's a lot. And uh, that narrowed down to about 160, but there was a problem. There's always a problem. 
some specialists required on the mission were missing. Besides, the requirement called for each team member to be single, never married, no children, and if possible, orphans. Any orphans out there? <laughs> Give me your orphans. The orphan. <laughs> the U.S. Air Force had to go out and recruit two doctors and several other specialists. So what they're saying, essentially, mm -hmm. is those people didn't apply. Right. Well, because... <laughs> or they didn't meet the criteria. Doctors, you know... Not a lot of, I mean... Not I, a lot of orphan doctors? Well, no, because it's very expensive to go through medical school, so, you know, yeah. I think that's... Uh, the selection committee decided to completely dissolve the identities of all the team members and to assign them three-digit numbers as their new identities. They wanted to sever all their existing connections to Earth except those with mission personnel, and that meant destroying all traceable identities. Yeah, consequently, they were all, they call it sheep dipped, according to an article in Time magazine on February 3rd, 2003, titled The CIA's Secret Army by Douglas Waller. If a soldier is assigned highly clandestine work, his or her records are changed to make it appear as if he resigned from the military or was given civilian status. This process is called sheep dipping after the practice of bathing sheep before they are sheared. And really, in this case, it wouldn't be just resigned because that wouldn't fit. No. <laughs> you have to make them disappear. Just absolutely remove their identity. Yep. This metaphor is slightly askew. It is really the shearing and not the dipping that applies here. Identities are sheared off like the wool of the sheep. One suggestion was that they all be listed as dead. That was debated. Well, it sucked when they got back. Yeah. That was debated and rejected. It was finally decided they'd be shown on their... Official military records as missing. Yeah, I mean, eventually somebody's going to, you get back 10, 10 years yeah. later or whatever, and you're good. you'll at least try to look up a friend. Right. Somebody, yeah. you, not everybody, but somebody's going to be looking up a friend. Well, you're dead. This thing's getting out. Yeah. yeah, you're dead. But even if this thing goes through as what it is, which it does, um, you're just going to go talk to her. Somebody's going to talk to somebody about this. Yeah. And this is, I think, it's a anonymous, which, again, going back to the previous episodes, this is someone we don't know who it is, but he's talking to, he's feeding this information through a person who uh, translated it into the website. That seems like a very odd decision since the missing category was only appropriate in wartime when thousands of military personnel were listed as missing in action. In 1963, the Vietnam War had not yet begun. And I think the Viet—I don't think this is entirely correct. I think the—I think the Vietnam War actually had begun unofficially before '63. It wasn't clear how the military would be able to explain how 12 people could be missing in peacetime. We can make a military person on active duty. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have to be in Vietnam to disappear. Right, but there would be questions. As opposed to if somebody disappears during, oh great, yeah. Maria's got her dog outside. <laughs> How could members of the armed forces suddenly not show up for duty without being labeled as deserters? Stranger still was the decision to either destroy their military records or to place them in a secret storage facility. That, that meant no investigator would ever know that they had been in the military. This means that they could never question the missing designation anyway. All other records were to be collected and destroyed or placed in a vault, like all the other UFO <laughs> records, yeah. including Internal Revenue Service tax returns. I, 
medical records and any other papers that showed that these 12 individuals have ever, ever existed. But my question is, how am I going to be paid? Now, I'm not doing this for free. Well, you know what I mean? I'm assuming you'd be assigned a new identity when you got home. Am I going to get back pay? Well, you, there should there should be some kind of pay for leaving the planet. Because I mean, but I mean, they'd have to set you up for when you got back so that you weren't destitute. It was never really discussed in here, as I've seen. I've been for I'm further along in the book than we are right here, and it never. I don't think it ever discussed as what the pay arrangement was. Interesting. <laughs> Uh, that was really an impossible task since there were probably papers such as birth certificates, school and college records, social security cards that may not have been retrievable by the military. The purpose of all this strict depersonalization is obscure. Well, they're going to do the best they can. I mean, they can't do it all maybe, but they can still get rid of a lot. The very fact that they can't get it all. Yeah. I mean, it would be less difficult than it would be today to do this because well, today there's re the internet and records about everything everywhere look up your own name yeah you know look at your storied past when you look up your name on the internet of all the things oh yeah there's so much about me <laughs> very possibly the committee wanted to prevent the writing of articles and books when the team members returned to earth and were released to civilian life the security oath alone should have accomplished that goal but they weren't taking any chances. Yeah, because we know oaths can never be broken. Yeah, these, uh, yeah. By eliminating their creden credentials, the military made it easy to disavow such writings. They wanted the full report of that space travelers to remain under lock and key for as long as they chose. Yeah, there could have been justifiable security reasons for this at the time. But now, in retrospect, it seems a great shame that those 12 courageous space pioneers must forever remain in the dark, in the dark halls of historical anonymity. It is sad because, you know, I'm sure they want to tell their story. Well, they're, they're yeah, because if you're going on an adventure like that um, in the name of, you know, humanity, basically, not just the United States, yeah. you, that should be... You should be celebrated. And if true, this should really be brought to light. I mean, I hate to say it, we're kind of... I know you kind of giggle and things, but it's kind of like if this were true, you know, this really has to come. This really has to be brought out. Yeah. But it probably never be, you know. Um, the final makeup of the team with their new three-digit identities. We've lost our identity. This is important now. Remember, you got to commit follows. this to memory. You oh need, Lord, I can't. You see, now there'll be a. Sign. I can't remember anything. <laughs> team Commander One O Two. Assistant Team Commander 203. Oh, why can't he be 102 and 103? Uh, nope. Why is it 203? <laughs> team Pilot number one is 225. Team Pilot number two is 308. Linguist number one is 420. These numbers do not make sense at all. 420. Linguist number two is 475. <laughs> the Biologist is 518. These numbers do not make sense. Scientist number one is 633. Science number two... 661. Doctor number one is 700. Doctor number two is 754. And security is 899. Why? Why I, wouldn't be 101, 102, I would understand. I would understand why they did this if they thought that there was going to be, it's kind of like your addresses at your house when there's a lot in between. Yeah. But <laughs> I don't know what they thought was going to be. These sec, there. I don't know. They never explain the reasoning why they selected these numbers. 
and um that was never that? that would have been doesn't really not necessarily to know but i'm just kind of a curiosity to the whole thing why did they just not make them well those numbers are so random yeah it might be that the ones are based a one is the most important the two is second most important three four I, is the fourth most important it might right. be because of rank yeah literally biologists i don't I, scientists well the doctors should the have pilots been. are 225 and 308 that's not you know i would understand if pilots were in the twos Linguists were in the fours, but there are no threes. Yeah. You know, it's just weird. In one of his emails, Anonymous answers some questions regarding the Serpo material that were sent in. One question relates to the selection process and others some additional insight. Uh, the question pertained to the team makeup. Why? A why? Were only two females taken? Yeah, and there's... We'll be addressing that as well. If one considers the monumental program associated with picking a team of 12 people where each person must be totally erased from the military system, no family ties, no spouses, and no children, one can see the difficulty that the selection group had. The selection group picked the best team members from a limited pool of military people. The original selection group picked 158 people. The final 12 were selected from that number. If you consider the psychological, medical, and other tests that had to be administered, the final 12 were the best qualified from the original number. Why they chose two females was never written. Apparently those two females were the best qualified in their individual specialty, a doctor and a linguist. You see, this would never fly today. Everything has to be even. Yeah. You don't pick because they're the best. You pick because they're what you need in that position. Well, um, that, that kind of lends a little legitimacy to the story. You know, it does. <laughs> that's how they acted that's back That's the then. way back then. You just picked the best person. <laughs> uh, the primary training for the mission took place at Camp Peary, oh, in Virginia, on the York River near, near Williamsburg. This is the not-so-secret main CIA training location popularly known as the farm. Oh, yeah, I've read about the farm in a million oh, murder really? books. Yeah. But officially referred to as the Armed Forces Experimental Training Activity, AFIDA. AFIDA. The project was assigned its own training complex within the larger facility where it could impose its own secrecy and security within the already highly secure CIA system. They would choose as, well, I kind of plugged in there what was the its uses. Oh, the CIA Directorate of Operations Officer Training and DIA Defense Clandestine Service. So it was necessary to go through two levels of screening just to gain access to this training location. Yeah, I didn't. I looked into it because I'd never. I've heard of the farm. Yeah. I said, "Oh, what about this?" So I kind of dug into it. So I plugged that. I kind of plugged that in as an interesting um, addition to the information. Camp Perry was the uh, Perry, I guess, was the home training site for the team, but they. We're also trained at a Shepherd Air Force Base in Wichita Falls, Texas, Ellsworth Air Force Base outside Rapid City, South Dakota, and Dow Air Force Base in Bangor, Maine. They were given high-altitude astronaut training at Tyndall Air Force Base near Panama City, Florida. Anonymous says they were also sent to unidentified locations in Mexico and Chile for special training. Camp Perry was a logical choice for training the team primarily because it was self-contained and it was ultra-secure. Since it was operated by the Defense Department, it was really a military base under the normal control of the U.S. Navy. 
He was named after famed naval explorer, Rear Admiral Robert E. Perry, who in 1909 was the first man to reach the North Pole. Self-containment was an important was important to the planners of the mission. They didn't want the team to make any connections outside their training facility where they might inadvertently drop a hint or reference to their mission. No, we don't want that. Camp Perry already had pleasant homes and apartments, recreational facilities, and retail establishments for the CIA trainees that were easily adaptable for the team. Since it was previously a Virginia State Forestry and Game Preserve, the camp residents could even enjoy hunting on the nine. I'll go shoot something on the nine thousand acre, <laughs> heavily wooded reservation in whatever spare time they were given. I wouldn't want to leave and go do anything else. <laughs> like, I'll just stay here. I think you might need a break once yeah. in a while. If I don't go, can I just stay here for ten years and just do some? Oh, just stay in the stay in the forest. <laughs> that would be nice. Secrecy and self-containment had always been the major virtues of this facility throughout its history. During World War II, it was the main training camp for the Navy Seabees, and then it was used to house German prisoners of war, mainly officers, who were supposed to have been killed in action, Secretly, yeah. but had actually been rescued by the Navy. It's probably wow. Project Paperclip. So more missing yeah, people. The, uh, not officers, but it's probably where they, we brought in the scientists, possibly. Consequently, the German high command thought that they were dead and couldn't give away any information. The prisoners could live normal lives, oh yeah, real normal, securely at Camp Perry while they were being interrogated. Eventually, most became naturalized American citizens. They got to hunt and fish and hang out, <laughs> you know. Well, and, this is be, a... and be interrogated. Wow, well, I'm sure we were very gentle about yeah, it. Yeah, I'm sure we were. <laughs> the Navy gave the reservation back to Virginia in 1946, but then took it over again in 1951. Fooled you. You thought you got it back. The purpose of CIA training at the farm is to imbue desk-bound intelligence operatives with the paramilitary skills they would need in enemy territories. Here, the keenly academic types are toughened up and made into pseudo shell I don't want to be a pseudo shell soldier. Well, you know, it's kind of like you're an accountant. <laughs> But you you're know. also James Bond. <laughs> this kind of James Bond commando training was resumed after 9-11 by George W. Bush after a long era of blunders by CIA paramilitary operatives in foreign countries who were in the Special Operations Group. You know, the SOG. SOG. I love acronyms. Waller says in his Time article until re fairly recently, the CIA is in, in an effort to uh, clean up its reputation sullied by botched overseas coups wow. and imperial assassination attempts had shied away from getting its hands dirty. Until about five years ago in 1998, it focused That's... instead on gathering intelligence that could be used by other parts of the government. Deb, Deb. Before that, traditional CIA officers, often working undercover as U.S. diplomats, got most of their secrets from the embassy cocktail circuit or by bribing foreign officials. Most didn't even have any weapons training. Now, says Waller, at Camp Perry, new SOG recruits, SOG recruits, also honed their paramilitary skills like sharpshooting with various kinds of weapons, setting up landing zones in remote areas for agency aircraft, and attacking enemy sites with a small force. Now, it would be interesting. I was just thinking mm -hmm. that, you know, if James, they could have done this. I think they need to do a, uh, 
one of those pre-series on James Bond where he was, you know, in school and he was a nerd. As we train, <laughs> as we train James Bond. No, to yeah, be but a... he started there. No, he's there. Uh-huh. You're, he's in high school. James Bond in high school. Oh, okay. And he's just a he's one of those nerd. You know the kind. Uh huh. Like read of books a lot, and, and you now, know. Now they're gonna make him into a. Yeah, now they're gonna make him into James Bond. They they really need to. Uh, I think they need to show that. You know. I'm sure. Kind of like I, young Indiana Jones. I think I've read books like that where they get some girl that's in college and, you know, recruit her and make her into some, you know, yeah, CIA person. This rebuilding of the special operations group by CIA director George Tennant required a makeover of the facilities and capabilities of Camp Perry, which started in 2001. But by the mid-60s, there had been some improvements as a result of the lessons learned in the Bay of Pigs debacle in 61. But those facilities were still rather primitive when the Serpo team was in training at the camp in uh, between 63 and 65. The complete training curriculum, according to Anonymous, is shown in Appendix 1. He claims to have received it from an associate named Gene. Gene. With a G. Email, you never know. Email moderator Victor Martinez provided Gene's last name, Laskowski. I tried him in People Looker. I can't find You can't find (laughs) Anonymous, excuse me, Anonymous tells us that Laskowski gave out these details of the training agenda because he wanted to beef up the released information with more specificity. Yeah, they expected uh, the completed program in about six months. It was a very ambitious program. Passing, passing of the coffee. Yeah. Um, it was an ambitious program. We find out from, again, Anonymous uh, gave the information through Victor Martinez, who gave the information into Sir, the Serpo, was translated into the Serpo website. And you can check, um, check, but you can review a lot more information about Serpo, which a lot of this will be interjected into our, our discussions on serpo.org. Uh, and it's still open, It's but the I believe the last entry, and that's where anybody could come in there and put anything on there that they knew. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe the last entry is on about 2014, so it might be something about the age of people and or whatever. Um Expected to be completed in about six months. It was a verily. Um, we found out from an anonymous email to the website that it actually lasted about eight months. The training was intense. Yeah, you can't. I have to imagine doing that much training in only eight months. I'll tell you what, though, that is a long time to train for. That's a long time to train. Yeah, but there's a lot to learn. But, you know, I know being in basic training, I think it's six weeks or something. Yeah. And it's that's squished. A lot of that is squished down mm-hmm. into six weeks it just seems like a long time to me is it it doesn't seem like much to me to learn a whole new thing Um, anonymous says each team member had to demonstrate their abilities to endure hardship oh so they abused them which included a battery of psychological tests medical screenings and a pat positive attitude test which is a military test given to pilots and special forces personnel we should give that to you i don't know i think i'd fail (laughs) I'm I'm positive I would fail a positive attitude test. Each team member had to endure extreme psychological and physical training. In one training test, each team member was locked on the I don't like this at all. (laughs) Was locked in a five foot by seven foot box, buried seven feet underground for five days with just food and water. 
no content with anyone else and in total darkness. No. No, first of all. <laughs> and second of all, I thought about this. I go, okay, could I do this? No. And I'm like, no. I, if it was light, maybe. Knowing, but in I, the dark? I'd be less freaked out knowing that I'm going to get out of there at least at some point. Okay, you know what I mean? Okay, I'm going to put you in a closet in the dark for five minutes and see what happens. A little Kool-Aid man coming as, through the door. As long as I, as long as I got my phone. It's going to look like the... Uh, the door jam in the bathroom. I said it would, <laughs> it would be the, the Kool-Aid man coming through the door. Don't talk about the bathroom that I broke. <laughs> Deb stepped off the back of the bed and missed I, a step. I fell through a door. It was bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't funny. But... I didn't. Evidently, Canada, evidently, Max sees something. Evidently, candidates with any tendency towards claustrophobia had been weeded out of the selection process. Otherwise, for anyone with such tendencies, this ordeal would definitely have caused the trainee to break. I don't know how anybody would be okay with that. Oh, no. Apparently, all the team members passed this test. It does seem logical to have imposed a claustrophobic stress test on the team since... They had to be prepared to be cooped up in the alien spacecraft for an extended journey to Zeta Reticuli, and it wasn't known in what sort of living quarters they would be ensconced. Ensconced. Well, that's, that's very an interesting. Fancy. Interesting word on circle. I mean, as it turns out, I've read it. I've read it ahead, and they it was very open, and lo- the ship is gigantic, so they didn't. So there was no reason to lock you in a no. Box but they for didn't know. Days. They didn't. They didn't know what type. They didn't ask. I mean, yeah. I guess we didn't say, hey, what kind of, we just, in case, we knew yeah. that these guys could handle it. It's just fun to torture We didn't, wouldn't want them to freak out in the first five minutes there. Mission over. Um, a selection of the Serpo, a section, sorry, of the Serpo website invited comments from anyone who had direct knowledge about Project Crystal Knight, but pre- preferred to remain anonymous. Many emails were received that confirmed all the basic facts about this remarkable journey. Um, Project Crystal Knight is the actual military name for this project. Mm-hmm. I mean, work the author, um, Secret Journey to Planet Serpo, that's the name of what they did, but the official military designation for this was Project Crystal Knight. So, hmm. regarding the training at Camp Perry, this letter basically authenticated the story revealed by Anonymous. The writer says... I was involved in Project Crystal Knight from about 1960 until 1965. I was assigned as a civilian to this project. I was a CIA employee with a specialty of survival in a foreign environment. I was a training instructor at the CIA training camp in Virginia. I trained the 12 men and no women who went on this mission. Having women there, I mean, I don't myself care either way, but it creates an interesting dynamic. Mm -hmm. If there's two women and ten men, as you could probably imagine, what might? Yeah, for ten when they're you know to be gone for a minimum of ten years, there's going to be. But women, men, men, women. Well, it could happen with guys, just I, all guys too. But you women, know, it's I like, mean, I would assume whatever. did they sterilize these women? Yeah, I as it turned. I mean, I think at the end game there is that they didn't send the women. I okay. think they sent just ten men, okay. but. Um, as I read through the diary, I went through, later on we'll be discussing the diary after they actually mm-hmm. land or, uh, during the trip, the trip there, and um, the, what they did while they were there. 
Um, yeah, it doesn't feel like I, and I'm reading into it. I'm like, is this something that could happen if there's women and they didn't, there was no, so far there hasn't been any, um, you know, cause you know, guys in the sixties, they're going to write and they're probably going to put in there something about the women because that's how they, that's was their thought process in the sixties. They didn't involve like they have, we have now they're going to put the woman this or that, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? There right. would be some indication Right. That there was something there other than a man. So that's, I'm looking for that to see okay. if there's any indication. I'm not yet seeing it. Okay. They spent about eight months at the training facility. A uh, few knew their exact mission, um, and it was classified top secret code word, which is a style. I had no other involvement with this mission after 1965. I was very surprised to hear this story come to light after all these years. The no women interjection in this email contradicts the claim by Anonymous that two women were part of the original team. There has been other testimony on both sides of the issue, and it remains contentious. It is possible that the 12 trainees referred to here consisted of 10 original team members and two Mabel alternates. Hmm. Um, but later on, they said there was there were women. I mean... Later on, it's been described also mm-hmm. that there were women, you know, in the weeding out process and there were alternates, but they okay. weren't selected. Um, the following email helps to clarify the contradiction. The Project Serpo information that I just read is not totally correct. There were two women in the original 16 selected for training. I helped train the team, including the two women. But after the final selection process, which did not involve any combat training like what was mentioned on the website, the two women were dropped from the list. Again, you we know, don't know, we don't really know. I mean, again, don't have a problem with whoever goes, but it would be an interesting dynamic. And you could get, you know, kind of, I hate to say it, kind of mm-hmm. love triangle things. Oh, yeah. And there's so many. Could happen with guys, too. Yeah. There's... So it's, you know, it. I mean, it's, it'd be interesting. So I guess it really does, but you would have to sterilize them probably. Yes, because you do not want pregnant women traveling through space. Yeah. Or, you know, on another planet maybe, or yeah. I don't know. It's just interesting. It would be an interesting dynamic if that would have happened. During the training, the team members didn't know their actual assignment. When the final cut was made, the 12 uh, selected were sent to a military prison, probably Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, and then told of the assignment. The 12 are isolated from that point on. The 12 are removed from the payroll. Oh, darn, they're not paid. Nope, no more pay. Payroll of the government and placed on a special file within the Defense Intelligence Agency. And the DIA, according to this, the DIA is the Kennedy Agency is what's driving this. Yeah, the DIA agency was the controlling agency in Project Crystal Knight, which was the name of the operation. However, the following email keeps the controversy alive. Got to keep that alive. I congratulate and commend you for getting this very important piece of America's hidden history out. I really enjoyed reading this information. I just shared it with many of my old Intel friends, and they all knew about it. It's truly an amazing story, all of which is fact. I guess there still is a controversy on whether two women went or not. At least one woman went for sure. I knew six of them while in training as their instructor. Two were nurses. One was a linguist, and I'm not sure about the others with the passage of time. Yeah, again, you forget this. This is pretty, yeah, pretty uh, memorable. 
Yeah, as discussed in previous chapters, we had at least one intact even craft in our possession. Anonymous makes mention of the one that crashed in the plains of St. Augustine in western New Mexico. He claims that this craft collided with the Corona disc on July 4th, 47, but limped on westward and finally came down near Daytil, but wasn't discovered until 49. This discovery date was disputed by other Roswell witnesses, but all agree that the disc was virtually undamaged. Well, it crashed. All the um, Ebens inside were dead, and it was, well, the story I got, well, the story I didn't personally get, the story I understand, is that it was open to the point where animals were able to get inside and, like, Aww. get to the Ebens. The Ebens got and, chewed up. And they got chewed up and brought out, and they were dismembered mm-hmm. by the the animals, not by anything Coyotes. else. Yeah, something like that. So... That disputes what they just said, that it right, was, was intact. Or, or it was intact enough for them to use it, even though if animals got in, I don't know. Um, it was sent to the Wright-Patterson Foreign Technology Division, headed by Eric Wang, for analysis and reverse engineering. The seriously damaged Corona craft was also shipped to Wright-Patterson. At that time, Area 51 was not yet in existence. However, after it became operational, both discs ended up there. Yeah, we learned from uh, Anonymous that the training plan actually contemplated a possible emergency escape contingency. He says several selected team members, pilots, were trained on flying an Eben craft. One of them was the one captured near western New Mexico in 1949. The plan called for the selected few to fly the craft back to Earth in case of an emergency. Unfortunately, the craft that they were trained to fly were like, they're not interplanetary. (laughs) No. Those craft are, they're carried by a mothership. Oh, that's so right, yeah. So. You can't fly that and survive, probably. You need to get just to the mothership. Yeah, that so it's then... a 10-month journey, first of all. So I don't know if you're, you know what I mean? It just yeah. in, in any case, it doesn't really make sense. There were four pilots on the team. 102, <laughs> 203, 225, and 308. You were supposed to know those numbers. I, I, this is going to be a test. Next time it comes up, you're going to have to tell me what their numbers are. What are the, oh, God. These four spent many weeks at the Nevada complex learning to fly the recovered Eben alien craft. You can just see this thing flying around. It wasn't hard to fly. Once one could understand the operations of the controls, yeah. I'm sure many of the UFO sightings back in 64, 65 around the West could be attributed to these Test flights by our team members. Yep, saw UFO. It was not doing well. In this reference to the St. Augustine craft, Anonymous implies that we had more than one flying even craft in our possession. The other one could only have been that disc that was delivered to us at Kingman, Arizona on May 21st, 1953 and was hauled on a tank carrier over the road to the Nevada test site. This is a a massed reference to Area 51, which was fully functional by that date, and had now become the major facility for the reverse engineering and flight testing of all recovered alien aircraft. Excuse me, alien craft. But Bob Lazar was there, and he told us. He told us. He told us exactly what happened. Bob knows. Bob knows. The belief that our pilots would be able to fly an alien craft 40 light years from Zeta Reticuli back to Earth was a very naive supposition based on. Lack of knowledge of the scientific principles involved at that time. Apparently, 
1964, nobody in the military-industrial complex had yet conceived the possibility that covering such vast distances could only be achieved by time travel through wormholes. <sighs> no, nobody's allowed to go out into the neighborhood. <laughs> Walk down the street, get barked at. It seems highly unlikely that human pilots would have been able to comprehend that sort of technology in that era. Even Star Trek, which debuted two years later in 1966, did not mention time travel, but referred to warp drives. It wasn't until the advent of Star Wars in 1977 that the term hyperspace, basically a synonym for the time domain, gained popular currency. The Eben discs in our position were only small scout craft. They were not meant for long-distance interstellar journeys. Since we had not yet seen the larger craft when the training took place, it is understandable how this judgment error could have occurred. Another email testimony confirmed the training at Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida and the fact that no women were in the final team. And we just debate this. Back and forth. Were there, weren't there. Evidently. Well, it's interesting because, you know, people are weighing in on this. Yeah. And even except for maybe they got the, you know, story and they're just weighing in. They don't know anything. But um, in order to make it seem like they were there, maybe they weren't. Who knows? But uh, evidently, the Tyndall training took place after the final 12 had been selected. Okay, who am I? This is, we're still this person. My father died in 1995. He was retired from the U.S. Air Force. In 1990, he told me a story about a special mission that he was involved in back in 1965. He told me that this mission was about 12 military astronauts that went to another planet in a spaceship that was found in the New Mexico desert. Yeah, but we know it wasn't done in that spaceship. But maybe that's the story he was told. Right. You know, or because they didn't have any information. His father wouldn't have had the, he assumed that was, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, many, for a long time, many have assumed that all these things we see flying around and that are crashing all over the place in mm -hmm. New Mexico and everything, <laughs> that... These are the things that came from the, you know, the, across the galaxy, you know, across the universe, which these probably all these things aren't really, you know, unless they mm -hmm. um, can go through wormholes and things. It's, they're probably not the actual craft. They're probably in a mothership. He said the 12 men were trained at Tyndall, Tyndall Air Force Base, Florida, where he was stationed. He helped train the 12 in space endurance, which he was trained to do. He said the 12 left in 1965 and came back in 1978, and he was there to check them after they returned to this earth. Oh, wow. I didn't know what to think about my dad's story. Back then, I just listened to him and thought maybe he was all just making it all up. But now I realize he was telling the truth. It's too late for my father to know about this, but I know my father was being truthful to me, and that makes me feel good. I look forward to reading more about this incredible story. That would be awesome. Yeah. It's just, but so he was there when it got back, but yet he still thought that those craft were the ones that went all the way across the universe. Well, they didn't bother to tell him those facts. Since this email describes the last training component for the remaining 12, I believe that it is safe to conclude that the final team composition consisted, well, they're hung up on know, how many men and women are on this, this thing. this to death. Consisted entirely of men. Well, they're trying to, un they're trying to undo what. Yeah. Could have happened. Tyndall Air Force Base was originally an air gunnery training base during World War II, hosting Allied as well as American pilots. 
Oh, one of its famous alumni was Clark Gable, who graduated in 1943. After the war, Tyndall became a general air weapons training facility and officially became an air training command base in 1950. In 1957, it became part of the Air Defense Command, which is responsible for defending the continental United States and its territories. In 1964, when the Serpo team went there, it had already begun training airmen for high-altitude and space operations. And then in 1968, the Air Defense Command officially changed its name to the Aerospace Defense Command. As mentioned above by one of the trainers, during the trainers, the team members, during the training, the team members didn't know their actual assignment. When the final cut was made, the 12 selected were sent to a military prison, and then they were told of their assignment. I guess once you're in prison, you ain't getting out, right? (laughs) One can imagine the reaction of the trainees to this revelation. (laughs) We're going, where? (laughs) I'm surprised more of them went, nah, I'm not doing that. Well, then you have to stay well, in we prison. We're a different type of person than we do today. You know, it's like we're not really fighting an enemy, but we're, it depends on if you wanted to be an adventurer. I mean, the adventurer like Christopher yeah. Columbus. Certainly, they could not have imagined such an assignment in their wildest dreams, even though some of the training might have suggested some sort of exotic mission. And then... After all they had gone through to be confined to Fort Leavenworth, Texas. Kansas. Ma- Kansas. <laughs> they moved from Texas. <laughs> yeah, must have added insult to injury. I should know that. I can know. You, you my, know that fact. I know that fact. There was no doubt an attempt to imbue the team with pride and to stimulate a feeling of the heroism of their mission and the glory they could anticipate. But yet, <laughs> yet. they must have never let unless been shaking in their boots they knew the promise of glory was a fiction and all that they could look forward to was a tremendous hardship and an early anonymous death on a distant planet Jeez. or a long in life long-term isolation to keep them from revealing what they knew it's like are they going to kill it's I know. How, you know, you know how is mean? this going to end are they yeah because you think you know they didn't have the distrust in the government that they do today the safest way to keep somebody from talking yeah um So it is not surprising that one of the team members asked to be excused. He changed his mind when he was told that he would have to remain at Fort Leavenworth until the team returned in 10 years. Yeah, that's not really... Yeah, never mind. Not really a fair out. (laughs) In December 1963, Los Alamos received a message from the Even Planet confirming all the details of the landing. The message specified the time, date, and the location that had previously been agreed to. All the numbers were stated using our location, time, and date protocols. The message told us that two even spaceships were already on their way and would arrive on schedule. Your flight is in progress and will be on time. We learned later that the journey took about 10 months, so that means the even spacecraft had been en route from Serpo for about six months of Earth time when the message was received. Oh, look, they left early. President Kennedy had been a assassinated only a few weeks earlier uh, so he wasn't able to revel in the arrangement that he helped put together and the entire nation was still in mourning at that point some of the dia project coordinators wanted to cancel the exchange program the fate of the mission was then left to president lyndon b johnson well they're already on their way here so you know must we refuse to go with them we just say no 
We're not, sorry, we're not doing it. We refused to board. Johnson was briefed by the mission planners and made the decision to continue with the exchange. Although we are told in a side note by Anonymous that the president really didn't believe that it would happen. Oh, another skeptic. Yeah. Well, and he was in charge. He was Lyndon, like Johnson Space. He was right. in charge of the, you know, the space program back then. And you'd think he would want that. But maybe he just wanted to do it with what we do with all this, you know, yeah. you know smoke spewing, flame shooting, air, you know, yeah, rockets better. like Rock- we have today. Rockets that destruct. You know, they can completely destroy a launch pad today. But I don't know. It is interesting to note here that apparently President Kennedy had not informed then President Johnson about Project Crystal Knight. This is surprising because Johnson had been appointed by Kennedy to be the uh, head of the Space Council. Evidently, Kennedy had been told by MJ-12 that the project information could not be shared with Johnson or with the president's cabinet. As the landing date approached, the team was ready and idle and probably enjoying some well-deserved rest and recreation while they remained under surveillance the whole time. Yeah, at prison. Are they probably, you know, it's, it's yeah, I don't think they have any good parts of Fort Leavenworth. <laughs> Their training had been completed and they had been given a 15-day vacation. In the, in the time just before the April landing date, they were sent back to Fort Leavenworth in Kansas and uh, were confined in locked cells in the U.S. disciplinary barracks and kept under close watch. So what did they do for vacation? So they let them go and then brought them back. They There's no way they let them go. You don't <laughs> think they just just go back to take no a way. trip to Hawaii? No way. It was like that. Yeah, we'll let, yeah, you'll get, get a little R&R for 15. Half of them probably wouldn't even come back. You know. Just run away. <laughs> This reflected the most fanatical dedication to secrecy by the planning committee. They were simply not taking any chances, no matter how remote, that information about the impending mission might be revealed. One can easily appreciate how depressed the team must have been to have been treated like criminals on the eve of what should have been a grand send-off on a historically momentous and an extraordinarily journey extraordinarily journey to the stars in another time under a different less paranoid government if there is such a thing they might have been sent off to the strains of patriotic music broadcast on international television and with a cheering crowd and audience uh in attendance (laughs) yeah Uh not in attendance The two alien craft entered our atmosphere on the afternoon of April 24th, 1964, right on schedule. These were not scout craft, but were much larger and were considered shuttlecraft. The first ship missed the rendezvous point and landed somewhere near Socorro, New Mexico. This was about 100 miles north of the planned landing site. We sent a message to the craft that it had launched, at the, <laughs> landed at the wrong place. Oops. The second ship picked up the message and made the navigation correction. It landed shortly thereafter at the precise designated location at White Sands, where a greeting party awaited. It can be assumed that it was late afternoon at that point. Although it could have been nighttime, it was shown in the movie Close Encounters, as it was shown in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Are we stopping? No, go ahead. Okay. Since we don't know where Steven Spielberg obtained his information, 
We don't know how accurate it was. Well, he didn't mean it to be a documentary. But it was distinctly possible that night had fallen by the time the alien craft had landed, and presumably the planning committee was prepared for that contingency with appropriate lighting, as in the movie. Yeah, we're going to wrap it up here, and uh, that's um, installment number four. And um, again, here's the book, if anybody wants to pick the book up and read ahead. Um, Secret Journey of Planet Serpo. Um, but remember, you'll not have our wonderful interjection and our yeah, ideas and Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't opinions. come with our <laughs> sidebars. No, no, that's not in the book. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Alien Probe Podcast. We welcome comments, questions, or requests to alienprobepodcast at gmail.com. Visit us on Facebook. Check out our web or check out our website, alienprobe.net. It has all our episodes on there. Twitter, Twitter and Instagram at alienprobepod. Like and subscribe at YouTube, Alien Probe Podcast. Thanks to Deb for joining me again. Thank you, Doug. And uh, we are going to wrap it up, and we'll see Episode 5 coming up. See you then. All right. Thank you. One hour even. Good. We got our time in. We got our time in. Thank you. Thanks, Max, for barking through it. Yeah. Matt lied. My, Matt cracks up. He goes, oh, yeah, I like it when Max is there. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> yeah, we all love it. Ooh, we made it with two pages to spare. Oh, good. Yeah, we could have gone longer if you wanted. Now I like to keep, we'll stretch it out. People are listening to it by episode, so we'll see how it goes. Thank you.